When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. So we're going to get started. The first question is for Dr. Lee Richmond. And Dr. Richmond, as you all remember, was the teacher of Joseph Maskell when he was at Loyola. And the first question for Dr. Lee is, what do you remember about Maskell's boat? You mentioned that he had a boat and that maybe you went out on the boat. And the keeper page that's debunking all that says there's no boat. Do you know anything about the boat, Lee? I do, but it was Maskell's boat. It was mine. It was your boat. It was my boat. And I had a boat, and it was in Baltimore. And Maskell said that he knew something about boats. And when I first bought the boat, I didn't know anything much about boats. So... I went out on the boat exactly once with him, and he was showing me some of the things regarding the controls. It's the only thing with regard to the boat. Thank God. <laughs> so glad you avoided all the mess. Okay, I can add a little bit to that. Maskell either had a boat or used a boat that was called the Queen of Hearts. And it was in one of the marinos in Dundalk. And he either used this boat that belonged to a friend named Bill and yes, he did take girls out on the boat, and a lot of bad stuff happened out there, including inappropriate photographs, drugs, other men getting involved with these girls who didn't know what was going on. So he even mentioned to somebody that he had to be careful because people were telling on him about girls going out on the boat. So thanks, Lee. I'm going to ask you one more, Lee. This is about actually his studies. Was he a candidate for a doctor in education degree? Was he like everything there but his dissertation? Can you give us an idea of what he actually had in terms of degrees? As far as I know, he had a master's degree in psychology from Townsend State University. My connection with him at Hopkins was that at the time he came to Hopkins, I was director of the program at Hopkins in counseling. Somebody knew him from Loyola, a professor at Loyola knew him. 
Her name was Beatrice Sarlos. At the time, the director of the counseling program at Loyola, left Loyola, he actually died. And Joseph Maskell took over the counseling program at Loyola. Dr. Sarlos asked me if he could be admitted to a program at Hopkins, and he had all of the credentials, the academic credentials to do. So he was admitted not to a doctoral program, but to a certificate of advanced studies program. Hopkins did not have a doctoral program in counseling at the time. So he was not a candidate for a doctor's degree. Okay. Lee, when you had him as a student, was it at Hopkins and Loyola? Or I never had him as a student at Loyola. I only knew a bit of Hopkins. I did not go to Loyola until after I, he, he was no longer in, anywhere around when I went to Loyola. Okay. We're I was director of the program at Hopkins. And then years later, actually 10 years later, I, was, I switched schools and went to Loyola for reasons that had nothing whatsoever to do with Joe's Rubens. Okay, we're going to come back to you. Our Malecki brothers are here, Dan and Daryl, two of Joyce's brothers, and I have a question for them, and it's pretty basic. Do you have any updates on Joyce's case? It's Pat and Daryl. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, we, we have no updates whatsoever. A couple of years ago, we, we met with two FBI agents at my brother's house, and they were, I don't want to say surprised, but they couldn't believe that we weren't contacted with any updates and from the FBI's. And since then, we haven't been contacted by them. To answer your question, no, we have no... Let me just ask you your opinion. Do you think Maskell was involved in Joyce's murder? Absolutely. Sharon Schmidt was running late and is not able to be with us tonight. But there was a question from Amy, and the question was a good one. And it is, do you or your mom know what happened to all the photos in the album? Could there have been clues in who the murderer had been in those pictures? Like the guys all together in a photo. And Sharon says she absolutely has no idea where the pictures are or what they were. So. That's a dead end for right now, okay? This question is going to be for Donna and then Michelle and then Teresa. This question and is from Nancy Kimball Dabkowski. The question for Donna, Michelle, and Teresa, do any of you or the other survivors remember somebody named Brother Bob? I do not remember no, Brother Bob. Is that Teresa? That was me, Teresa. Okay. And is Donna here? I'm here. Can't say for sure that I do. Do you remember somebody being referred to as Brother Bob? No. Okay. And Michelle, how about you? No, I don't. Okay. I'm going to keep with the survivors for a minute. This question is from Mary Diaz. Did any of the survivors ever say anything to the school nurse, Mrs. Stafford, about what was going on or have any interactions with her during this time? I was frequently caught, asked to report to the nurse's office, and the nurse would typically tell me that the school wanted to see me. 
times Father Maskell would be waiting in the nurse's office and take me down to his office. I never told the nurse because I was scared. She was very scared. I have an answer also for that. I really feel like she was complicit, whether consciously or subconsciously, because I can remember being called also to the health suite or the nurse's office and then having Father Magnus come down and draw the curtain with me in there and nothing was ever said. She never intervened or asked why he's there. So I think there was a bit of complicity there. Michelle, can I ask you to clarify, like, so you went there because you were called there because you weren't feeling? I was, I was, I was, I wasn't feeling well. And actually I had called my best friend, they called my best friend to sit with me. And in the interim, the nurse had called Father Magnus and Father Magnus had my friend Donna, he told her to leave and he closed the curtain. And unfortunately, I don't have I don't have that memory of what happened after that in there, but I do know that happened more than once. That he came into the health suite behind the curtain with you, and I was lying in the bed with the curtain around me, so it wasn't exactly the nurse's office, but it was the health suite. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry too, Michelle. I would be called overhead and. That was one of the first places I would ask. And I remember going in saying, don't make me be masked. And her sitting at a little desk and just said, get down the hall. She would say, just go. She told you to go. Yeah. Get down the hall. And I'm in tears and all trying to make every stop I can by read down the hall. I can add that I've been told by a really credible source that once a week, Mrs. Stafford, Sister Judith, who was supposedly the dean, Maskell, and whoever was the guidance counselor would meet in the morning and they would go over the list of girls who were having either academic problems, health issues, or emotional family problems and discuss them. And so he would walk away from there with his list for the week of vulnerable students that he could pray on. And it sounds to me like the other three adults are certainly complicit. Okay. The next question, this is from Nancy Dubkowski. Do you think Russell kept quiet because she feared for her life and her families if she went to authorities? Yes, I think I know there's been some controversy since the keepers came out about that. And I've always had a feeling or just my gut that she wasn't involved in a bad way. If she was involved, I don't believe it was something that she wanted to be doing. I think they threatened her when she was out here in Carroll. I sold her that house and I knew I talked to one of her neighbors after she passed and she told me a story that Russell shared with her as they became close friends and she said that her shoulder her, her arm was broken when she was younger and it was never set it was never fixed I find that very odd and anybody anyone that knows who Russell was at the time 
she was methodical about so many different things. And as far as her health was concerned, she had broken her arm. I'm sure she would have gone to the doctors or the hospital, whatever. So I've always felt since I learned that there's a possibility that he hurt her. He manhandled her and threatened her for life and maybe her family's. And that may have kept her from saying anything. But I know there's been talk lately, maybe the last year or so, that may not be true, that it may be she was involved further than I thought she would ever be. I just never felt that way. I never thought she would do anything to hurt anyone. So I guess that's just my feeling about her. Chris and I have talked about this several times because we both knew Russell. She was our teacher. And she was not what people were making her out to be. I see her as being somebody who would keep their mouth shut because they would have to decide between going to the police who were involved or protecting herself and her family. And I would have done the same thing. Also, Chris and I were wondering if maybe we know that there's an appellate court summary that in which Jean discusses those who abused her and Marcel's name is in there. And then Jean later says it couldn't have been because she remembers her in her black habit. But if that did happen, I believe she was coerced into doing something that she would never have done on her own. But that's my opinion and we don't know. Okay. Can I, can I say one other thing? Uh, sure. Okay, so those of you who know who I am know that I'm a little strange, that I've had some weird things happen in my life that I feel spiritual things go on. And when I heard that about Russell, I that night, I was distraught. I really was thinking something terrible. And I went to bed with the thought in my mind saying to Russ, please give me a sign that you didn't do that, that you weren't involved that way. Maybe if she was involved, it was because she had to be like coerced. And so I, and I will tell you the whole part of this because it will take too long, but I woke up in the morning and I saw a text from one of my customers and they wanted to see a house. And I looked at the address and I knew it was her house. And it had just gone on the market that morning. Wasn't even something he was interested in. He wanted to see it that day. And when I saw the address, it was the house that she lived in where she passed away. She actually had moved, her husband had moved out after she passed away. So there was a new family in there. So I haven't, I wasn't really following it was there. So I went to that house and I asked, I did a videotape of it. My daughter was with me. We heard a noise upstairs. My daughter freaked out right out the door because she thought that was crazy, but I felt like she was there and I felt like she said, no, I didn't do it. I want you to know, I want you to be able to understand that was not me or that was not something I wanted to do. And that's what I hold on to. I really feel like she was talking to me. I know that sounds strange to some people, but it did happen, honestly. And I would not lie about something like that. It was just unbelievable when I saw that address and even a picture of it. He texted me a picture of the house. So... He didn't buy it, by the way. In our ongoing journey dissecting real-life mysteries, I've found a perfect companion in a game that not only captivates, but also lets me step into the shoes of a detective in the glamorous 1920s, June's Journey, 
As someone who's delved deep into the game, playing through the intriguing scenarios of June Parker, I can personally vouch for its immersive experience. In June's journey, you unravel the mystery of June Parker's sister's murder. Each scene is a visual and intellectual puzzle, with hidden clues scattered across beautifully crafted locations. What I've enjoyed most is the depths of the storyline. Each chapter peels back a layer of this thrilling narrative, revealing danger, mystery, and romance. Besides the allure of solving mysteries, the game lets you design and customize your own luxurious estate island. Building my estate has been a delightful escape, offering a creative break from the intense narratives we tackle on the podcast. For those of you who enjoy the blend of history, mystery, and narrative depth we explore on this podcast, June's Journey offers a chance to live out those elements in a beautifully interactive setting. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android, and join me in this ongoing quest to uncover hidden truths and solve complex mysteries. You never know. Yeah. A lot of people have a sixth sense that's really accurate. Dr. Lee, don't you think that people know? Come on, you saw the movie. (laughs) I'm kidding. Okay, I won't put you on the spot. Okay, the next question is a two-parter for me. This is from my buddy, Sheila Mahoney, Geyser, and Renee McGurr. And the question is, was it anticipated that Kathy and Russell would return in the fall to Keogh of 69 in any classes or activities in addition to their job at Western? So just to clarify, the answer is no. They were not going to come back to Keogh for anything. And Kathy was teaching at Western High School, which was a girls' public high school in the city. And Russell was teaching right next door to their apartments at Rockland Junior High. So they were both established there teaching. And at Western, the students didn't even know Kathy was a nun. Some of them said they suspected because she just seemed to be less casual than some of the teachers were and maybe wasn't as comfortable in daytime clothing because she was so used to being in a habit. But no, they both were going to be at those schools. I do know that because their request to do this social experiment was declined by the mother superior, that they had, I know Kathy had to decide before December whether or not she was going to totally leave the convent and not be a nun or whether she would go back. And she could have kept teaching that Western, okay? So I think that answers that from Sheila and Renee. Yes. I just, who was the woman who was just speaking who said she had the spiritual experience? That's Chris. Russell's friend, Chris. Yes. I don't know who Russell is or anything, but... Russell is Kathy's, Kathy's roommate. Okay, well, I have an experience like that. I just want to say it's not unusual. Well, I'm talking as a psychologist. I've seen many people. It, it, when you ask me, what do I believe about it? It's not a thing for psychology to believe anything at all. I just know that a lot of people have reported phenomenon that are extrasensory. So whoever has said that should not feel in any way odd about having that experience. And that's happened to Chris a lot. That hasn't just happened one time. She just shared a lot with me. 
I think I'm too much of a control freak and a realist to have that kind of stuff happen to me. I don't allow it to happen. I just want people to know it's it's not odd at all. It's not odd. Thank you. Next question is for Mike. Some say that Poob is behaving oddly out of guilt because he just loved Kathy, not because he harmed her. I am one of those people, as I believe he is lying and hiding way more than he is saying. In your opinion, does Coop behave deceptively when he talks? Also, could the vagina story have been an extravagant lie as he nearly looks like he was going to let something else slip? And I noted in the movie that he started when Ryan White asked him if it was a picture, he said, no, it was a black... And then he stopped and he went back and said it was a heart-shaped newspaper. So, Mike, we're interested in your take on his behavior. So, Coop, to me, he shows a lot of involuntary indicators such as nodding his head yes when he's given a no answer and the opposite when he's giving a yes answer and shaking his head no. To me, believes I think he's more superior than anybody he's talking to. He steeples his hands a lot when he's talking, which means he makes like a church steeple with his fingers. He kind of interlaces them a lot. And that indicator is, hey, I'm more superior than you. Listen to me. I know the facts. I'm telling the truth. So he's got a lot of deceptive cues. He gates down a lot. He, like I said, does the verbal message, does a massive physical gesture, a lot of that. His steepling of his hands, his rubbing and wringing of his hands. It's leaning back his posture. He likes to ask a lot of questions as to how much information they know as out of the investigation. As he said once before, had they had they talked to his buddy Pete, he wanted to know how far they've gotten with him because he said he hadn't talked to him in quite some time. But as far as the vagina story, I can't believe that at all. I don't I, I can't see if an, an Someone in an interrogation bringing that in and saying what it was. First of all, if it was evidence, it w- they wouldn't allow it out. It would be contaminated or whatever. Some Anything could happen to it. So I can't see anything like that happening. I've been in instances before where they'll have a folder on the table in front of a suspect and say, hey, we have pictures of you doing the crime. And if you don't come forward and tell us you did it, we're going to walk these pitches down to the judge down the hall. And they go to take them and they'll pull them back and say, no, you can't see them. You have to confess first. But I don't believe that for a second. It could have been a ploy they did. Nothing's out of possibility. But I don't believe it at all. No. I did a little digging after Mike did that podcast. May. I'm pretty out there. So I first I got in touch with Captain John Barnold, who was in the Keepers. And it was his men. He was Baltimore County homicide. So Coop took the first polygraph and passed it. His friend Pete took a polygraph, but not the same day, the next day, and passed it. So I wonder what happened in the 12 hours in between. Okay. The next thing I did was I was very, I asked Coop a lot of questions. It's hard for me to call him Jerry now. And I said to him, What about the second polygraph? He said to me, it was a rookie cop who didn't know what he was doing. And 
when they were, this polygraph was when Kathy was found. So it was not Baltimore City, it was Baltimore County who did the second one. He told me that when the guy finished, he said to Coob, either you don't trust me or you're hiding something. In other words, he didn't pass the second polygraph. And Coob said to him, I don't think you know what you're doing, so it must be the first. That officer went in a back room and came out with that, whatever the newspaper wrap thing was, and threw it across the table. And Jerry swears by that story. Now, that Baltimore County polygraph was taken at the police station. Jerry was never at the medical examiner's office. There would have been no body parts at the police station, first of all. So that didn't happen. He also swears that he's not making this up, that it happened. I just want to know what his first sentence was when he said, no, it was a black something. I don't know what he was calling it. So I told Dr. Dr. Captain Barnold, and he said, None of his men would have ever done anything like that. And Barnold has offered to help us. I, t- I talk to him every week. He looks. He lives in a retirement community, and he's quite interested in helping now. He said it didn't happen and that nothing was taken out of the medical examiner's office at the point with that, okay? This next question, Mike, we're going to come back to you, is for Sharon Borch. Okay. Chris, do you think she kept quiet because she feared for her life and her family if she went to the authorities? Jim, I just sitting here and hearing things that I hadn't heard before when Chris was talking, I can't even imagine that Russell would do anything other than I can't imagine half of what I've been hearing tonight. I didn't know that there was any doubt in the fact that Russell had no Parted any of the evil. And if she was being quiet, it would have had to have been to protect somebody. I can't imagine her at any point in time part of it in any shape or form. And the only way that she would have been quiet, and I never heard her say one thing about it. I was only 18 at the time, but I've never suspected anything at all, never knew anything was going on. But now that I look back, questioning that the detective asked me on the morning after Kathy's disappearance. Somebody had to know something in order to know the right question to ask me. Could you share that again with us for those who might not have heard it the first time? What happened when you got there to the apartment? When I got to the apartment the next day, I knew ahead of time, Russ had told me that there was a detective that wanted to ask some questions. And so after the formality of asking my name and where I lived, he asked me if anybody had ever done anything to me that I didn't want them to do at Keogh. And I was taken back by the question because we were there to find out what happened to Kathy. And I didn't know why the questioning was being directed towards anything that could have happened to me. I had no clue at that point what they were asking. I had no idea what the questioning, why they were questioning me in that way. And now, 50 years later, to look back and think, that possibly Russell, I have two thoughts that possibly Russell could have said something to the detective since I went to Keogh, ask her if maybe someone had hurt her. The second thing was that possibly the policeman who was asking me the questions knew something and wanted to know how far I was involved. 
And so I didn't know which direction it was going in. But when I look at it now, 50 years later, I don't know which way that questioning was. I was just taken back by the questioning of wanting to know why someone wanted to know if anybody had hurt me. But looking back now and trying to see if Russell had any involvement in it, I still cannot believe. And I guess because she was my best friend and she was like a sister to me, I thought we shared everything. And I thought that we were so close. I even went to Florida with her. She had given me a present as a a Christmas present to go to Florida the next year to meet her family and go to her sister's graduation. And we spent a week at Disney. They had just opened Disney World. And I can't imagine anybody I was that close to being involved in anything like this and not ever having any kind of idea at all. Not one inkling of anything that that she was anything other than another victim. And we located that detective and his daughter asked him some questions. He's not real well. He's very old. And Uh so, yeah, so he wasn't clear about the conversation. But you told us, Sharon, on the podcast that Russell was standing near you when that detective... She was near me the whole time because she'd asked me to come over. First of all, I knew that I had told her to call me if she heard anything that the night before when she called me. But the next day when she called and said, could you come over? The detectives would like to ask you some questions. I said, and we went right over. She was with me because she knew it was a very trying situation for everybody. And no, I don't know what at the time I thought she was just being a support for me. So I had no idea in the questioning where that question came from. I didn't question her coming up with it at the time. I just thought that it was an odd question to be asking me when we were looking for Kathy. But now it makes sense looking back, hindsight. I know that Coop and McKeon were still there. And I've been pretty blunt asking him if he recollects that conversation because it wasn't like he was hiding or in a different room. He says he doesn't recollect it. He doesn't know what you're talking about. He was there, not right next to me. He wasn't right. He wasn't like, Kathy was with me, but he was not right there. There were several people in that apartment when I was there. I was standing in the middle of the living room. The detective was standing there as well. We didn't sit down for for any interview. And Russ was there. There were people sitting on the sofa. There were other people walking around. There was a couple of detectives that were in and out of the apartment, coming and going, doing what they're investigating. And Pete and Jerry were still there, but they weren't right with me. I don't know if they were in the dining room or the kitchen or just it's a small apartment, but there were other people there milling around. And I don't remember all of the details of that. I do remember what was said to me. I remember standing there. I remember what that detective looked like as far as what he was wearing. I still have the picture in my brain, but I don't know why that question was asked of me. I don't know whether Russell said something to the policeman that I went to Keogh and maybe she knows. I don't know. I don't know where it originated. The other thing is that it wasn't like he took you to a private place to ask you the question. No, he did not. I was standing in the middle of the living room. I remember it. Right. He, down. he mm-hmm. still had his trench coat on. He had a coat just in all weather, like a London fog on. I still remember him, but I don't. It was brief. It wasn't a 20-minute discussion or anything. He just asked me a few questions. And he said he had my name and number and my address if he needed to get back to me or if he needed to ask me anything else. And that was the end of it. Also, when I shared with him what you said, and he said, I don't remember that, I also had heard, I think from you, Sharon, that they drove back and forth between Edmonton Village and the apartment. Like, when maybe... 
Yeah, I thought so. To my knowledge, in the morning, when we, when I got over there, before the detective asked me any questions, when we were there, I was there for before the detective asked me questions after we talked for a little bit. Russ and Jerry and Pete, we were talking about how the car was found and what was in the car as far as the twig and the thread. And we talked about that quite a bit. We just kept hashing over what could it mean. It had to be symbolic because Kathy, everything she did was symbolic and, right. and had meaning. And so mm-hmm. we were trying to think why there could be two twigs. Grass was never mentioned, the word for grass. I don't recall that at all. I, I recall the whole discussion as being around twigs and a thread and how Kathy must have been trying to get us a, a message and that she maybe used the thread from her sweater or from a slip or something to configure a cross to let us know that it was had to do with somebody being religious and that it had something to do. And that was the discussion we had. The other thing that's interesting is that the car was taken out away very early. Dan, I'm waiting to see your face when I say this. Sharon didn't even see the car before it was towed. It was towed not on a flatbed. And it was not processed until after it was towed. So that's not typical. I've talked to an ex-cop who said if there's evidence inside and they don't want it to shift, they either process it right there, take pictures, and we have no pictures of it actually at the apartment. I didn't um, see the apartment or see the car in the morning. The, the car was gone by the time I got there. The one picture that you all have seen from the keepers, that is not, that's Kathy's car, but it was photoshopped purposely by the filmmakers so that we could see where people claimed they saw the car. So it's a graphic design to help us understand that is not a picture of her car where it was parked when it was found. So my cop friend said, if it's not processed at the scene, they wrap it in plastic wrap and then they put it on a flatbed truck. They don't tow it with a tow book. And it was towed, Dan, by the, shake your head, it was towed by the back, the back end. Yes. He's not sure, or the front end. Okay. It was towed to the Southwest City Police Bay where they processed it there. There are things that were in the car. Go ahead, Dan. The normal way in those days would have been from the back. Okay. But but if they put it on a flatbed, they could get it there either way, forward or backward. Anyway, so it doesn't make sense to us that everything was shifted around and they still took pictures. The trash can, we never have seen where the trash can is. Where is it? The cigarette butt that we thought was laying on the ground at the crime scene well, it looks like the cigarette butt is in the back seat of the car. So none of the, the investigation itself, I think, was not very well done. And we don't know why. Is it because some of the cops knew what was going on? And if you've seen the picture of the neighborhood the next morning, there I've counted 30-some police cars. Why do 30-some police cars show up for a 26-year-old woman who's not even been missing for 24 hours? When I was there in the morning, there was discussion of what was in the car. The muleys, one of the biggest things that I do remember in the discussion 
that morning was they knew she had made it as far as Muley's because the roles were in the car. And I was told when we were talking about it, I was, I definitely remember them saying that the box of Muley's baked goods were on the seat. It wasn't on the floor. I don't remember floor being mentioned. I just remember they were on the seat. And I remember that the discussion about the twig and the thread and the, and they were twigs, they weren't leaves. And it was definitely in the shape of a cross. And they said that, what could all of that mean? She must be trying to tell us where she is and who has her. And well, this was the discussion. It was a, a lot. I knew about Muley's baked goods before the police even asked me questions. I knew what was in the car. I knew how far she had made it. And I don't, and I, to get back to your original question about knowing that when they got there to Russ's apartment, I thought that one of the first things they were going to do was to go back and see if she had car trouble by seeing if they could backtrack to the shopping center, to the heck company, to the hoshels to see if her car broke down. So I, I really did think that they went back out to, to see that. I don't, Russell wouldn't have left because I know she told me she didn't want to leave the apartment in case she came home. She didn't want to be come home to an empty apartment. She right. wanted to be there. She came back. She said that to me. So Poop says they, he doesn't recall. He says he doesn't recall a lot. He doesn't recall, he doesn't recall it. But I do know that from what I remember, Russ, just from the discussion that very next morning, I thought it was Pete and Jerry had gone out to see if they could see if her car broke down. And then later on, they went for a walk. That part, I know. They had gone out for a walk and they found the car. And then that's when they said that there was the twig hanging from the steering wheel and the box of Muley's baked goods was on the seat. Yeah, the missing person report, which Dan has been amazing working with. Actually, it's going to, the whole missing person report is in the appendix of my book. So you'll get to read the whole thing. Wow. It, it does not agree with anything that we're saying. It doesn't agree with the timeline. So we don't know if the mis- there's pages missing. It does not agree with who saw the car when. Coop, I said to him, why, if you parked on the street, why wouldn't you have seen the car? We were running to get to Russell as fast as we could. Why didn't the cop see the car? The cop came at 1.35 to take a missing person report. Why didn't he see the car? It was there. It was there. We have six neighbors. Yeah. Dan, shake your head, right? That said they saw the car as early as 10 30, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock. I, and I, I, talked I, to these, I talked to these people. They're still living. Yeah. I was not told any of that. When I got there the next day and we were talking about the car, when they said they found the car, they said it was up the street. That was the description of where it was. I wasn't told that it was parked at an angle in that right. little bit of a driveway or street. I was told it was up the street. It was up North yeah. Bend, and it was just right up the street, and it was found around 4 o'clock. If the Muley's box was on the floor, that means it fell off the seat when it was towed. So why bother with those photographs? That doesn't make sense to yeah. me. No, that part of it, I don't know why they'd say the Muley's box was on the seat when it wasn't on the seat. That confused me, too, when I saw the picture, even yeah. though I knew that it was staged for the keepers, but... No, that was not staged. That was the actual, the only photograph that was photoshopped was the one photograph of Kathy's car parked in Lantern Court with her apartment behind it. Okay, I'm sorry. Okay, they took a picture of her car 
from when it was processed in the police bay and they flipped it around to make it match the perspective and the angle. Because if you look at that photograph, the steering wheel is on the wrong side. It is. Well, I called our producer and the editor and they both said that is the only picture tripod media did anything with okay caused more problems than helped because everybody's saying (laughs) this has been fixed they didn't on purpose they didn't realize that they flipped it over and that the steering wheel was on the wrong side i hope this is making sense to everybody but none of the other pictures all those other pictures were from when this car was processed after it was towed okay I didn't ever see it. I just heard what was the discussion that morning about right. finding the car and finding what type of message that Kathy was trying to give to us by the twigs and the thread. And we backtracked by saying, seeing the Muley's box, we knew she had made it to the, at least to that store. Unless somebody put the Muley's box there after well, that- we got into the police bay. How do we know? We don't, we can't trust anything right now. This investigation, wish I was. 30 years younger anyway. So yeah, that whole scenario does not make sense. It also, the missing person report says that the car was found sticking out of carriage court, which is further up the street, but Coob and McKeon say it was found in Lantern Court, which is directly across the street. And the people who were interviewed were mostly people who could have seen it from carriage cord. So, who moved the car? Lantern Court. I've talked to several people that remember all this. They're charming, gracious people in their 80s and 90s. They said they never heard anything. They didn't know anything was wrong until they got up the next morning and the neighborhood was full of police officers. I thought it was not right. And I think it implicates more than one person. So, anyway. We're going to come back to you in a minute, Sharon, okay? Okay. This question is a legal one for Teresa. This is from Sam Ketterman, our buddy, and we love Sam. When Doro went to trial, did any police officers, active or retired, come forward to offer Beverly Wallace any supporting testimony or evidence? None that I know of. Beverly kept me well informed as to the status of the case and things that were going on. She never told me about any police officers coming forward. She told me there was about 30 geo women that had uh, come forward and offered their support to the NG, but no policemen now. But it really didn't even go to trial, right? No, it didn't. The hearing that we lost on was the statute of limitations. It was a pre-trial motion, and we didn't even get that far. So, no, we didn't have a trial. Okay. Teresa, and I'm going to come back to you in a minute. I'm interested in if anybody listening has real quick wants to say what they think thing hanging off the steering wheel is. Now, I will tell you that cold case officer mm. Captain Robin Teal told me there was a yellow thread in the car and Kathy was wearing a yellow sweater. And I read a report that Bob Erlinson sent me that said Harry Romer, who is deceased, 
but he signed for a slip, a blue skirt, a yellow sweater, and one glove. And another officer signed for a wedding ring, a school ring, and a watch. So the yellow thread makes sense, just as an FYI. Does anybody want to say what they maybe think or know that that we've tried to look at it up close? We can't figure it out what it is. Anybody want to say what they think it might be? Speak now or forever hold your... I know I'm taking over, but I think that's my job tonight. Gemma, back at Keogh at the time, girls were discussing this. And I overheard a conversation where someone thought it reminded them of some gift that had been given to Kathy, symbolizing the fork in the road, two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and that's why they used a yellow string. And she hung it on her steering turn signal to signify having to make choices between roads. But that was just some speculation. I never found out if any of those girls had actually given her that gift. What I think it might be is a lot of killers, what do you want to say, serial killers, anyone like that, like to leave a little clue behind. And didn't they say that was that same branch, that same vegetation was in the same area? Same area where she was found? Yes, Mike, it is. Gary Child said it was typical of the vegetation where she was found. I've read a lot of things where a lot of killers will leave behind a clue, a serial, like a calling card or something they leave behind because I don't know how she would have had time to make that thing and hang it there. So that's my thought. It would be typical of her. And if somebody knew her, they might even do it like on purpose to make it look like it was something she would do. I don't know. I thought from the discussion that morning when we were talking that it was definitely the discussion went in the direction of it being Kathy while she was being driven somewhere trying to give us the signal. That was the discussion. and That's the way it went. And we kept saying how symbolic she was that she would try to get us some kind of hint as to who was taking her and some way to find her. And mm-hmm. the cross, Wake came up with the twigs being a cross and it would held together with the string from her sweater or her slip. Yeah. So that, that was where the discussion right. went that morning. From what Do you remember who was part of the discussion? Yeah, it was Russ and Pete and Jerry. And uh, that was basically who we were speaking, who I was speaking to. We were sitting right. at the table and, and that was before the detective came to ask me questions. They were mm-hmm. discussing finding the car what was in it. And that was the big discussion. It was, they were somewhat excited over the fact that they maybe could find her with these signs that she was leaving. Now, when we went over to Carriage House with Koo and Abby parked her car, the way, this is in the keepers, the way that Kathy's was supposedly parked, he showed us how he opened the door and he said there was a long piece of dried grass. He did not talk about it being a twig or he said it was like a long piece of dried like seagrass so i don't know we didn't grass wasn't a word that i remember being used at all i remember the word two twigs and some string and how she could have formed it and made the cross out of it as they were driving and tried to do it secretly yeah how i know the third thing on the other side i don't know 
Now it doesn't make as much sense as it did then. No, I don't think so either. That's to be determined. The cops might already know these answers. I don't know. Where is it? Where is it? Now, it wasn't written down as something being collected. They in the missing person report said they found branches inside and outside of the car. It doesn't talk about anything being hung on that steering wheel. This is Tom. I'm just wondering, as goofy as Edgar was, but that maybe it wasn't he thought about maybe driving her car. Maybe it was something he might have done. I don't know. You saw how he played with that rubber band. In the and movies. Talk about trophies and taking things. Like, who has a bedroom with a, stuff, a bedroom just for stuffed animals? I don't know. It could be, Tom. That's why we can't give up on this. Okay. okay we're back to you. And the question is from Aaron Phelps. Dr. Richmond, what is your take on the possibility that Maskell could have been involved with MK Ultra? I don't even know who you're talking Who's MK Ultra? Okay, it's a CIA program in mind control. And several of the women who were abused by him were subjected to mind control experiments. And we have met a woman, she's not on here tonight, who was trafficked by Dr. Christian Richter, who was the gynecologist that Maskell took the girls to. And he was an MK Ultra handler. And she was taken to NASA and some other universities where they were using mind control on children to train them to be spies. And we think that he had access to some of the MK Ultra technique. It would not have been out of reason to think that he could have been. He was uh, smart, wasn't he? You've got to know that when I knew him, was long after this happened. And I knew him in a different capacity than most of you knew him. However, he was, there were some very odd things about him that I noticed when I knew him. For instance, why would a priest have that much interest in guns that he had? That was one thing. The other thing that I noticed is why I wasn't aware because I read it in a sort of paper that a sister was killed. And I did not know Kathy, I guess that's her name at all. But I do know that Maskell was digging in his cemetery. All, and I did say that at the time that you made the keeper. So I, that was puzzling to me. There's really, it, he was a strange guy, that's for sure. I knew him as a nice guy. I'm with that in quotes. I know that somebody sent a question about was he evil? And I didn't see any evil when I knew him, however, and I knew nothing about what occurred to some of you. However, when I knew him, there were many strange things that did occur that I did not put together until after your people came. I would not be surprised as a psychologist, and I don't know the name of the gentleman that just told you that somebody might have left a clue, but I would not be surprised if there were a priest involved, that the priest would have made the cross and left the strength. Attention, friends. Are you ready to embark on a journey into the unknown this Mother's Day? Prepare to dive into the depths of your family's history with mylifeinabook.com. Each week, mylifeinabook.com sends intriguing questions 
uncovering the thrilling tales of your mom's past, and then she can either type her response or use their voice-to-text feature. From daring escapes to nail-biting encounters, her life becomes an epic adventure waiting to be explored. This Mother's Day, give the gift of excitement and intrigue with mylifeinabook.com. It's a thrilling ride through your mom's life that you won't want to miss. I gave this to my mom last year, and let's just say I didn't know my mom as well as I thought I did. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use code SHANE at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use code SHANE for 10% off today. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Interesting. That would not not surprise me at all. That's an interesting idea. Because it's true that very often, and I have worked in the courts and so forensic psychologists, it is true that very often people do leave clues to who they are. The other thing that I know is that when I did see Maskell at the end of of when he was in Baltimore, when he was at the church in Elkridge, you know what I'm talking about. St. Augustine. Yes. Yes, St. Augustine. He did have a cross there. He did talk a lot about priests making signs of the cross on women's chest with semen, actually. Yeah, you, you knew that. Hmm. So in the papers that I saw from the archdiocese, there was some sentence about a priest. And I have no idea if Maskell was involved in a murder or not. But because he was always digging in the cemetery, I knew he was involved in something. I even asked him what he was doing. And he said that he was, there was a lot of weeds in the cemetery that he had to straighten out. Um, And another time I asked him what's going on there. And he said there was some psychological assessments that he had to bury there. I think I told you this before. And you don't usually bury psychological assessments, but you might get rid of them somehow. So I would suggest that any records that were there was what he was burying. But again, at the time I knew him, I had no suspicion of anything going on. The only time a strange thought crossed my mind is when I saw the death of 
the sister in the paper. There ain't possible connection there. Lee, when you went to see him at the towards the end, and you said he didn't seem well to you, he did, did he not. Seem, did he seem physically ill? Was he in bed? Was he just? Could you describe what you remember? I remember having the feeling that he was not well. I asked him a question of, he showed me records of what was done. He did not at any time tell me he was involved in those records. But I said, how can you see something like this and not talk about it? How can you see these records and not tell people what you know? How can you do that? And is that moral? That I remember very clearly. And he said it was absolutely moral, which was when I had some doubts about where he was coming from. But that seemed to be a very sick thing to me. But the morality of it would have been that he didn't want, that I would have thought that he didn't want the church hurt. Whether he was psychologically ill for a long time, whether he had dissociative disorder, that he was two people or more. Really? I don't know. I don't right. know that was a question that was asked me. Why? Because whenever I saw him, he was kind and he was gentle. He seemed to be a good man doing some very strange things. Does that make sense? He yes. was very bright. That I know. He told you he was getting a doctorate at Hopkins. He lied. He wanted to get a doctorate. I did not know this at the time, but I traced it down later. He wanted to get a doctorate, but he couldn't have gotten a doctorate with counseling because they didn't happen at the time. It would have been an emotional disturbance. I heard that he had told my friend, Dr. Sarlos, that he could not get a doctorate because the archdiocese wasn't going to pay for it. Nothing in the record that I ever saw that said he had applied for a doctoral program. So I only knew him when he came to Hopkins as a student. Yeah. That's when, he and he was, when you went to see him, do you remember what the papers were that he showed you? There were papers that were accusing people of doing various things, accusing priests. And he was saying, can you believe this? Do you, can you believe this? It's so you were not involved. So it could have been, if this was in the 90s, it could have been the witness reports that his own attorney may have shown him from the people that came forward and said that they had been abused. It exactly could have been. I don't right. know what they were. I know they were. Papers that with some headers on them. In other words, they were just sheets of paper thrown around. Okay. But I don't know. I don't know who sent the paper. If you don't mind me asking, was that the point where like your stomach fell out and you thought this guy is not what I thought he was? The only thing I can say is that I was very surprised at that time, particularly when he said, answered the morality question, I was also surprised that he really did not seem to be well. Wow. I don't know that my stomach fell out. He was different than I knew him. Let's put it that way. Huh. Because I always knew him as being relatively healthy, strapping. Mm -hmm. Never understood why he was doing the digging in the cemetery himself. We do have, we have talked to at least one, we've talked to two families who he was the pastor and their Parents were buried, and when they went to see the burial plot, Maskell said I, they weren't buried there because I had to use the spot for something else. And so this young man whose mom had been buried there went after him physically. There's a police report that Maskell charged the young man with assault. And I've seen that report that the family got really angry that he had 
the mother's body moved to use the plot for something else. That whole digging in the cemetery bit was very strange. That's mm-hmm. not something priests do. And I know that you don't usually bury papers psychologically. He said they were, what he said, they were psychological assessments that were done at Towson mm-hmm. that he did when he was a master's student in Towson. That's interesting. Sure, that's not true. We know what some of them are because we took still photos from the video and blew them up. And they were from the American Psychological something that identified the tests for us as personality tests and psychological tests that he would not have had the authority to administer. But Dr. Urban, who was the school psychologist, would have had access to those. Go ahead, Chris. But I think about those files that he was throwing into the hole in the cemetery. I feel like a predator and or a someone who, you know, a serial killer, that's like their trophies. They save it. Why in the world, if they were incriminating, why would he bury them and not burn them? So he treasured them. That's how I feel. He wanted them to be there. He wanted them to be able to dig those back, take a look at them when he felt like Mm -hmm. it. And I think otherwise, they were so incriminating or that Sharon May lied and she saw some of those things on there. They would have put him away for the rest of his life. Can I ask you a question? How many reports do you know were there? It was three truckloads. Okay, the hole was the size of a room. Okay, he did not do all those tests. He couldn't possibly do them. They were done by several people. Okay, he administered tests to all the freshmen. So every year there would have been 300 freshmen. And they remember taking these tests. And then some of them were called back into his office to do a weirder test. There was also pornography in the hole, which a police officer told us he saw. The groundskeeper, in between trips the truck was making, took some of the pornography out and blackmailed Maskell with it and kept it. That guy is has dementia and is very old, but all his kids, all seven of the kids that lived in the caretaker's house were able to go to Catholic school. So he was blackmailing Maskell with some of the pornographic pictures that were there. Okay. If he was giving 300 tests a year, he was bearing some educational tests, but he couldn't have buried that many psychological tests. And my question to you would be, were there other people giving psychological tests or was it all done by this one? And the people here would know, was it all done by this one Urban fellow or were there other psychologists involved? There was what Dr. Urban was hired by the archdiocese to travel to the Catholic high schools. I've talked to him. He died last year and it was so creepy because when I called him, he said, I've been expecting your call. And I was like, whoa. And he said, you did a great job. And I said, I asked him questions. He said, if I knew anything, I would have had to report it. But was, he was in it up to his eyeballs. Was Gilbert Clapperton involved from Loyola? Who? Dr. Clapperton, who tested in every, all the Catholic schools. He was hired by Loyola. The Archdiocese, they don't, don't know that name. Don't know I, that name. I can jump in here. He was a partner along with Gregory Helwig. And I was actually. They were part of Psychology Associates, and I was actually sent to see Gregory Helwig in Baltimore, and my friend Donna was seeing Dr. Urban at 
Keo. And so they were part of the same group. I don't think Dr. Clapperton was involved. Okay. But Michelle, explain what happened when you went to see Helwig. So I'm a therapist. So he was doing desensitization type things with me where he would say, tell me how attractive you find me. He was a young guy, probably in his mid-20s. And he said, I want you to rate it on a scale from one to 10, the things you would like to do to me or with me. So it was this whole sexualized, what he called desensitization. And while he was doing that, he was rubbing my thigh. And so this was an ongoing thing of where I was very intimidated by him and it was not a good situation. So my girlfriend, Donna, saw Dr. Urban at Chio and her mother was always there waiting for her outside the office. And the only thing he ever did to her that was inappropriate was she told him she felt insecure about herself. And he said, I wouldn't call you beautiful, but you're really cute. And I know that doesn't sound terribly awful, but it's really inappropriate and unprofessional. So that whole group I came to find out later from a third party had a reputation for taking advantage of the Catholic high school girls. And I found that out from someone else who was a part of that group. So that's the long answer to your question about Gilbert Clapperton. That was the question I asked because there had to be more than one psychologist involved. All those papers there. They may well, have even been yeah. school psychologists, school and involved. There were other things. There were boxes of photographs that we heard there was a whole box. Teresa's lawyer told her there was a whole box just of her. There were a lot of directories, family directories of different parishes, stuff that was not inappropriate, but in light of what he was doing, would have helped him. I talked to a gentleman yesterday on the phone who used to work with Maskell on the church bulletin, and he said the maintenance man took him into the library at the rectory and said, come and look at this, and went to the back stack and pulled out a couple of big old dictionaries, and he said it was the raunchiest pornography he's ever seen that was stashed behind those in the priest house to look at. So, you know, guys, if you're hearing anything that applies to you, we need you need to make sure you're reporting this to Richard Wolf, who's doing the criminal investigation for the attorney general. I really encourage anybody who has anything that they know about the abuse or about the murder or any of these people we're talking, we can help you do that call. He's a really good guy. I think I send him at least one person every week. So anyway, the next question is actually for the survivors. Have any of you had any new memories that you feel comfortable sharing? I've remembered vivid details of what happened in his office. I've been going over these things over and over again to various people, and I've been remembering more detail, and sometimes it's pretty troubling. Yeah, okay. This is a question that's a good one from Mary Spence. Sharon Bush, the question has to do with the apartment, and I understand what she's asking. She's read many times that Kathy and Russ lived in the bottom floor, and the apartment was partially below ground. 
So there was no balcony or patio, no sliding glass doors as a secondary entrance. Yet when Jerry Coob showed the apartment and the keepers, it appeared that he went up a set of steps. So can you explain how you would go up the steps to go down into the apartment, Sharon? Yes, easily. Her apartment was partially underground. That's true. And she didn't have a patio. But you parked, her apartment was around the back of the building. It wasn't right in the front of North Bend. It was facing the parking lot. And when you parked your car, you would go over and there'd be a few steps that you would go up and then you would go down some steps into her apartment, which was the first one on the right. So that's how that was explained. The parking lot was a little bit higher than her actual apartment was. Does that make sense, Mary, now? Okay. Because you do have to, and the partition wasn't there. No, it's out. I also wondered, was there any kind of storage room in the building? There was a laundry room that was in the building, but all apartments seem to have storage areas for for people to keep their Christmas decorations, that type of thing. But I was never in theirs. I don't know where it was located. I don't know if it was part of the laundry room or not, but I never saw it. I knew that they had the laundry room right not too far from their apartment door, but I never went in it. The reason I wondered, I lived in an apartment that it was in the laundry room. It was very easy to break into. And I'm thinking about the removal of the rug. Right. Which I don't, child wasn't there when it was removed. Could they have just taken it out of her storage room and picked up a box of her habits while they were in there? When they moved in, they didn't have very much and people were giving them things so that they could pull together enough household items so they could make a house, furniture and that type of thing. I don't know that they had that much at that early point. They'd only moved in in, I believe, July. And so from July to November, I don't know that they even had any Christmas decorations yet that very first year. And I don't know what else they would have kept in storage. But I never heard of Russ ever saying to me in those immediate weeks after or months after that anybody had broken into her apartment. She never she never told me anything as it turns out. But there was never any break-in that I was aware of or anything stolen that she knew about, that she said anything to or made reference to in any way. But she did use the laundry room. I know that. And whether the storage, that's about the only place there'd be storage areas. They used to have cordoned off with a like a gate or something with a lock on it that each apartment had one assigned to them to put storage, but I never heard her talk about it. I, and to my knowledge, I never saw her go to it. So I'm but, not sure about that. Yeah, I think we have to take Brian Schmidt's story, just my opinion. I believe what he saw, but he was five. What happened was during the day, and it would have been after, uh, my theory is that it would have been in the weeks after Cappy disappeared, And Russ may have been at work or staying with their family. And those guys, it would have been a piece of cake for them to pick that lock. They were neighbors. Billy probably had, Billy was friends with Kathy and Russ. He may have had their key. My neighbor has my key. Right. I don't think they would have taken, I don't think they would have taken a rug because that would be missed. But I think a blanket out of a closet in a bedroom might not be missed. I don't think the apartment was ever a crime scene. I don't believe, and I'm just saying, no. like, this is just based on every all the research I've done. 
I don't think that Kathy was murdered in that apartment because there were too many people there in that 24 hours for that to have happened. I think if he saw them carrying something out, it could have been a blanket. I think it would have happened when Jean, after Jean saw Pappy's body and Maskell panicked and thought it needed to be moved because her dad was a cop. And what if she brought somebody back there? She has shared with me where they took her to see Kathy's body. It's not far from where Kathy was found. It would be not hard for them to carry Kathy's body in a blanket to where she was actually found. And Jean will probably share that eventually. She was going to do a podcast about it, but she went over with our filmmakers and they found the spot. And I think if Brian saw anything, it would have been them moving her body from one place to another. So just my idea. But he was just a really young kid. Mike, I'm going to ask you, can you talk a little bit more about Edgar's behavior just in general during the part of the interview that he did for the docuseries? Sure. So, Edgar, where do I begin? That guy is a textbook. You could learn all deceptive behaviors, stress indicators, fear from this guy. He shows everything, including increased breathing rates. He shows face touching, including one very important one that I pointed out in the podcast where he's touching the side of his face through the shape of an L, stroking his chin and gazing down. And by all indications, that's a pre-confession cluster right there. And he was ready at that point. He was ready to confess that his part, this is my opinion, my training. I believe that at that point, he wanted to say what his part was in it, but he didn't go through. He didn't follow it. Covering his mouth when he asked, but do you have information on Kathy's murder? No, that's his brain splitting. He's saying he's denying it verbally, but his mind's sending that finger over. Don't say the truth. Don't give them what they want. That guy is just, in my opinion, especially the increased breathing when they showed pictures of Maskell and Kathy to him. Some people will say he's old. No, it's not because he's old. It's a different type of breathing. It's not a labored breathing that comes from the lungs. It's a stress indicator. And when he saw that picture of Kathy and let that huge, exaggerated swallow go, the Adam's apple jump, and their eyes opened up. Yeah, this guy, you could make a training film on this guy. He was definitely involved. Everything I've been trained in just leads me to believe that, in my opinion, that he was definitely involved in some role, Kathy's murder, for sure. Definitely. We've tried to get the whole interview because they were there for hours. They waited till his wife went to work. And he actually had to sign a release form. I don't know how they got him to do that. None of us knew that he had even been interviewed until the film was ready to come out. Mike, what I was thinking about was, do you see significance in all those stuffed animals? And the other one was, when he answered a question, he would look down and then he would look up at Ryan is that to see if the person's believing what he said? Well, that's gazing down. That's a sign of a classic sign of deception. You don't want to look the interviewer in the eye when you're answering or after you answer, you gaze down. Because in your mind, you're thinking, I don't want them to see my reaction. So mm -hmm. I'm going to gaze down, then look up again. 
But as far as the stuffed animals go, there can be a lot of reasons for that. But the one I believe in, when you're involved in a traumatic event, say Kathy's murder, a lot of people surround themselves with things that comfort them. Mm-hmm. And whatever reason why stuffed animals, I don't know. But that is a definite thing. And that happens a lot with people who go mm-hmm. through traumatic events and could have been the reason why. He's never admitted it. And it could have mm-hmm. haunted him whole life. I think if it, there was a do-over, and I think Ryan White is amazing, but I don't think they expected to get all that out of Edgar. I guess, I think Ryan may have had like other probing questions and I thought he was ready to spill his guts too. I think yeah. most of us thought he was going to admit what he did. The thing is, yeah, Ryan did a great job and he's a great director and he does that, but he's not a trained interrogator. When you see those indicators in response to a question, like that's when you see that those wide open eyes go, that Adam's apple jump, the increased breathing. In response to that question, you want to go down that rabbit hole and find out why it affected that way. You want to keep digging. You want to keep asking questions related to the same type of question. And he's not experienced and that's not his fault, obviously. But if there were a different person doing that, and kept hitting them with questions when those indicators showed up, I guarantee there would have been a a different outcome. And we're going to tie this up for tonight, but just on a note of positivity, I did talk to Robin Teal this week. There is more DNA to be processed from Kathy's clothing. And there has been DNA collected from all of the possible perpetrators. Other bodies were exhumed, not just Maskell. So you can read between the lines. So there is DNA from Edgar, Kub, both of the Schmidt brothers, Maskell. I don't know about Magnus, but they're using a new process. It's called MVAC. They're waiting for a lab to do some more processing with them. It's called Verigen. I talked to a forensic scientist. He said it's upcoming thing. The reason it's taking so long, he explained to me, is that because DNA processing is changing so quickly that if you needed a teaspoon of DNA 50 years ago to get a result, today you might only need a few grains. So the longer they wait, the more things are happening where they can process smaller amounts of DNA. So, fingers crossed. Also, the attorney general's investigation has been continuing almost two years. And again, please, if you know anybody who even was harassed in the confessional by one of these people or abused by one of the people, this was a huge network. This involved high-ranking politicians, It involved some of the nuns. There were lay teachers from Kiyo who were involved. Heads are going to roll. And this is huge. The Archdiocese of Baltimore, I'm going to use the word racketeering. Heard that from somebody who knows. So please, if you have something to share, let me know. I can put you in touch with the right person. I can get you Richard Wolf's email and phone number. So Don't go to bed tonight thinking you can't tell if something happened to you. Thank you, guys. Love you all. Thank you, Shane. Good night. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.